good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? Yeah? Yeah? Are you thankful for the lovely weather that we've had this weekend? How many more fake springs do you think we'll have in Kansas? This is, man, tell you what, if I see snow on the forecast one more time this year, I'm going to just endure it like all other Kansans. Yeah. Uh, good morning. My name is Caleb Klinger. I'm the student director here at Westside. It is my pleasure to be here with you. Normally on a Sunday, you'll find me back in the middle school service uh, that's happening right now, uh, hanging out with your middle schoolers. And the cool thing is that during this series of one, we've actually been doing the series alongside uh, with all of you in here. And so if you have a middle schooler that is in the middle school service, make sure you ask them that dreaded question that middle schoolers loved to be asked. Hey, what did you learn today? Yeah, if you have a middle schooler and you ask them that at school and that blank stare they give you, you're just like, you're, you're just there. Like, how do you not know what you learned? I don't know. Um, yeah, have that conversation with them. We're looking at the seven claims of Jesus that are captured in the book of John, these claims that Jesus made to his divinity. And as we are looking into these claims, we, we see that John recorded these claims so that we can have an understanding of who Jesus says he is. And our series big idea just is simply that Jesus is God, therefore he is Lord. Jesus is God. We believe those claims that he made to his divinity, therefore we follow him, we submit to him as our Lord and our Savior. We're going to be looking at the book of John, chapter 14, uh, the first few verses in that book. But before we turn in our phones to that uh, chapter, uh, I want to give some context to what is happening here. So John 14 kicks off what, what some uh, you know, scholarly people call Jesus' locker room speech. And, and it's this last moments that he has with the disciples where he gets to just impart wisdom and knowledge into them before his ultimate betrayal, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And so it's this amping up towards the events that are going to be happening uh, at the end of this Passion Week. And so in John 13, we see the story of Jesus in the Last Supper. We just participated in communion. And, and so we can, we can see that happen in John 13 as he's sitting with the disciples and, and Andrew can't quite get his foil open. And Jesus is like, no, you have to do it this way. You peel it this way. And they participate in that first communion. Come on, guys. Where are you at? <laughs> but we also see Jesus take some time to do something that was astounding. He washed the disciples' feet in John 13. Jesus also predicts his betrayal and his death in John 13. And so leading into John 14, some significant events have happened. And so we pick up in John 14, verse 1, where Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. It's a great start to this final moments of Jesus' teaching. He's reassuring them that they have something to look forward to and that 
although he is leaving them, he is preparing a place for them. And then Thomas opens his mouth. And I feel like Thomas is a lot like uh, some of us, where we open our mouth, words come out, and then we think about what we just said, right? Because in this moment, in verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now, you, you have to understand, Thomas had been walking with Jesus for three years at this point. He'd been eating with him, listening to him, ministering with him. He had basically existed with Jesus for three years. And he still is unsure. He still has a pretty critical question. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And how many of you just relate to Thomas in that moment? You see, a lot of us have been walking with Jesus for longer than Thomas. Some of us have been walking with Jesus for most of our lives. And yet, how often do we have that feeling? God, where are you going? Where are you leading me? What is happening? Maybe your prayer life is full of those types of questions where we're, we're so focused on our own expectations that we don't understand where God is leading us. You see, the disciples had expectations that they put on Jesus. As the Messiah, he was supposed to come and he was supposed to overthrow Rome. He was supposed to conquer the oppressors. He was supposed to usher in this new kingdom on earth. But Jesus was more focused on the kingdom of heaven, an eternal kingdom. And so Thomas has this question, this uncertainty. And we see that that we often have these types of uncertainties in our life. Maybe you've prayed a prayer like that. I don't, I don't know where you're leading me. Maybe you just want something to be spelled out for you. You just want it to be black and white. God, just give me the black and white. Just, just be clear, right? Some of us would ignore the, everything that Jesus is saying, even if it was a neon sign that was 17 feet wide and, and it just blared every time we looked at it. And it was like, this is the sign from God. We'd still just maybe be like, I don't, where's, where, where are you taking me, right? Maybe we know where God is leading us. And we just don't want, we just don't want it because it's hard and there's suffering. Maybe we feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and it's just like, you want me to do what? You want me to go where? You want me to say what? These uncertainties are a part of our life. You see, we often feel like we don't know where God is leading. We often have that feeling of uncertainty in our, in our stomach, in our pit, or in our mind where we just don't quite understand God's design or God's plan. And the good news is that you're not alone in this. If you are feeling this way, you're not alone in this. In fact, uh, one of the reasons that I just love the Bible so much is it is full of humans. And it is full of stories of humans and how they struggle with God intervening and interacting with them in their lives. And so I've highlighted a couple that I wanted to talk about for a few minutes. So the first one I want to highlight is Job. If you haven't read the book of Job, it's a fantastic book. And it, it, it's possibly the oldest story that we have in the Bible, the oldest book of the Bible. And it also possibly answers 
the oldest question that humanity has had. Why do bad things happen to good people? You see, Job didn't have a grasp or a knowledge about what God was doing and why God was allowing these things to happen. And, and Job was, was very uncertain about the reason why. And what's interesting at the end of Job is Job gets to have this dialogue with God. And this dialogue encapsulates the fact that God is sovereign. And in fact, at one point, God says, I have the absolute sovereignty to do whatever, and you don't have to know the reasons behind everything. That's a tough, tough thing to understand. We see the story of Gideon, which is found in Judges 6 and 8, 6 through 8. I love Gideon. So Gideon gets called by God, and Gideon uh, has this interaction with God where God is saying, just basically says, I want you to lead the army that's going to overthrow Midian. All right? So Israel had been conquered by the Midianites, and God calls Gideon to lead this insurrection, to lead this uprising against their oppressors. But Gideon was like a little bit wavering on if it was really him. So Gideon says, all right, if it's really me, I need a sign. So like a fountain of fire erupts from a rock, right? It's, that would be enough for me, but not for Gideon. Gideon's like, no, 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 that was cool. I appreciate pyrotechnics, but I have this, I have this fleece, okay? I'm going to put it outside, and in the morning, I want the ground around it to be wet, but the fleece to be dry. And, and then I'll really know that you're calling me, that you want me to do it. And so God does it. God says, yes, Gideon, I'm calling you. I want you to lead the army against the Midianites. And, and Gideon goes out, and he sees the fleece, and he's like, that's awesome. Okay, tomorrow, I want the fleece to be wet and the ground around it to be dry. And so God's like, okay, Gideon, I'm, I'm serious. I'm calling you to do this, right? So Gideon is convinced. And, and he was an amazing, he must have been an amazing motivational speaker or a crowd funder or whatever, because he raises up an army of 32,000 Israelites to fight against Midian. And you know what God does? He sees Gideon's army and he says, they're too strong and there's too many of them. And they're going to take the credit. So I need you to eliminate two-thirds of them. And so Gideon eliminates 22,000 of the men. Now he's got an army of 10,000. Okay, not as good as 32,000, but the 10,000 that remained, they were the strongest. They were the most fearless. They were the warriors, man. So he, he still felt confident going into battle with 10,000. And God says, nope, still too many. And God limits Gideon's army to 300 men. Right? Eat your heart out, Thermopylae. God did it first. God did it better. 300 men against the whole of the Midian army. That was not the way that Gideon envisioned it going. And yet, they were victorious because God was leading them. God was in control. We see in the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah. What I love about Jonah is Jonah knew exactly where God was leading him. God came to him and said, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them that they're awful and I'm going to judge them. And Jonah was like, that's cool. I'm going this way. And he just noped 
his way the opposite direction. And sometimes I feel like that's the way that we are. We see clearly where God is leading us, and we realize, God, you're leading me into enemy territory where I have to deliver bad news. And how many of us had that exact reaction where we just don't follow? See, the the interesting thing about Jonah is when God forgave Nineveh because they repented, Jonah got mad at God. And he was like, I knew you were going to forgive my enemies. We also see John the Baptist go through a similar situation. Now, John the Baptist... He baptized Jesus. He saw the dove descend from heaven. He heard the voice of God say, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And yet, John the Baptist in Matthew 11, verse 2, is in prison. And and we read about it in Matthew 11. He says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? You see, sometimes circumstances make us forget what we have experienced or what we have seen or what we have heard from God. And we look for that certainty still. See, John was wrongfully imprisoned and had little hope for his own life. And even after everything that he had seen Jesus do and seen and heard, he still has questions, still has uncertainty. And sometimes we answer God's call and we follow his leading, but circumstances don't end up the way that we envision. See, John the Baptist answered God's call, followed him into the desert, and preached repentance to prepare the way for Jesus, and yet circumstances didn't end up the way that he envisioned. So he had questions. Then we get to Thomas. Thomas in John 14, 5. He's walked with Jesus for three years. He's seen incredible, miraculous things. He's ministered with Jesus. He was sent out by Jesus to perform miracles himself. He's listened to everything that Jesus has said, and yet he still has this question. And so many of us have been walking with Jesus, and we've been walking with Jesus a long time, and many of us have witnessed Jesus come through time and time again, and yet we can so easily lose sight of what has happened because we're so worried about what will happen. But I love how Jesus responds. Jesus responds to this question so beautifully. He could have, ca- he could have chastised Thomas or admonished him. He could have said, Thomas, you dolt, haven't you been listening? But what he says in verse 6 is, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, there's something remarkable about this passage, and it's the sentence, no one comes through the Father except through me. You know, this is really the offensive message of the gospel. This is the offensive limiting factor of the gospel that so many people can't come to terms with. I've heard many people ask the questions, well, what if someone's good all their life, but 
but they believe in a different religion? What if, what if they live their life and, and they're a pious person and they, they, they aren't greedy and they, and they do good things? But Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's an incredibly offensive statement for most of the world. In fact, that's the statement that most non-Christians look at and they take it and they use it as ammunition against us. They use it as a way to discredit what it is that we say we believe. And I think that Jesus makes this offensive statement right after he makes these claims that we see in verse 6 because he wanted to reveal a powerful idea. It's this, Jesus wants us to orient our identity in him. That our identity, the core of who we are, has to be rooted and planted firmly in Jesus. That if we use anything else as a foundation for our life, it is not a pathway that leads to the Father. It's only by rooting ourselves firmly in Jesus that we have access to the Father. And it is only through the power of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection that we experience the forgiveness of our sins. And we are able to have access to God. But church, we need to identify with Jesus first and foremost. And I believe that Jesus gives us the roadmap to this life that he promises. See, Jesus makes three bold I am claims in verse 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And that last one is super important. I feel like that last one, we sometimes cling on to that claim. Okay, Jesus, you're the life. I want that life. I want, I want the joy that comes with following you. I want, I, want, I want the life that you have promised me, the eternal life that is promised. But if we ignore Jesus as the way and Jesus as the truth, then we don't get the whole picture. And we don't actually get to a point where we get to experience the life. And Casey on Easter is going to be talking about the resurrection and the life. You're not going to want to miss that because Jesus is the life that we can have access to. But it comes through following Jesus as the way and accepting Jesus as the truth. And when we look at Jesus as the way, his claim that he makes as, as the way, I think he answers a really important question. See, Jesus says he is the way, meaning he is the answer to the question, how? You see, the way gives us the answer to the question, how? Think of your life and the circumstances in it. Think of the, the experiences that you've had where you've had this question, how? Maybe it's, how, how do I forgive this person who wronged me? And we look at Jesus on the cross, and he forgives the soldiers who are crucifying him. Well, maybe the question is, how do I show love to people who have bad intentions against me? We talked about John 13. He washed the disciples' feet at the table of the Last Supper. And you know who was sitting at that table? Judas Iscariot. In fact, it's just a few verses later that Judas is prompted to go out and betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that that was going to happen. 
Maybe the how question you have is, how can I serve others when it feels like I have no time or energy? We look at Jesus in Matthew 20, verse 28. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus shows us how we should live our life and proves that his way is the way. And he proves it through the way that he lived his life and through the stories that we have of his life and his ministry in the gospel, we get to experience and understand what his way is. And we look at Jesus' claim of, I am the truth. And I think that answers the fundamental question of why. Truth answers the question why. I'm not talking about truth in the way that that modern culture likes to talk about truth, where you can have your own truth and it's, and it's based on your own lived experience. I'm talking about a foundational, fundamental, objective truth that is rock solid. And that gives us a foundation not only for our identity, but where we can build our life upon it. This, this foundational truth that pr- provides the bedrock for who we are. It's this concrete foundational for our lives truth that answers this, this primal question of why. Why do I never feel joy? John 15, 10, and 11, if you keep my commands... You will remain in my love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Why is there so much suffering in the world? John 16, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, the truth is recorded in Scripture for us to learn. The truth is recorded in the gospel stories so that we can experience the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. The truth is written in our hearts and minds as we grow in relationship with Jesus. And the truth becomes the foundation for our entire identity because we are who he says we are. It becomes the foundation for our identity because of who he says we are and what he has demonstrated for us. He proved his love for us. He proved the value that he puts on us through the cross and the resurrection. Jesus is the truth because of who he says we are. And he calls us his own. He calls us his children, his church. There's two powerful things that we need to understand about this. For Jesus to be the way in our lives, we need to submit to his will. For Jesus to be the way, for us to implement Jesus as the way, we need to have that moment where we submit to his will. We cannot live our own way, go our own path six days a week, come in here on Sunday and claim that Jesus is the way. We cannot claim Jesus is our way when we ignore his authority over how we live our lives. The second is, for Jesus to be our truth, we need to ensure our identity is cemented in him. You see, we cannot cling to this fickle idea of my truth that somehow governs 
my morality, my ethics. We cannot have that as the foundation of our lives if we want to accept Jesus as the truth. We cannot live out our identity by our career, by our familial relationships, by, by our sexuality or expression, by our gifts or by our talents, by anything other than Jesus if we want access to the life that God wants for us, the life that he promises us. Our teaching big idea this week is this. If we want to live our own way and in our own truth, we will not have access to God's life. This is a hard thing to give up. If we want to continue to live in our own way, and if we want to continue to grasp onto things as our truth, or believe in the lies that are being spread that, that invade our hearts and minds, then we don't have access to God's life. We have to understand that it's, a, it's an all or nothing principle. There is no halfway here. And this is the limiting factor of Jesus' gospel. He needs to be first and foremost in our lives. He requires us to live out our lives through Him and rooted in Him. You see, when we follow Jesus as the way and believe in Him as the truth, we experience the life the Father wants for us. When we follow Jesus as the way and believe in Him as the truth, we experience the life the Father wants for us. But it has to be both. It's not either or. You cannot claim to follow Jesus as the way and yet reject the truth. You cannot cling to Jesus as the truth but live your own way. There's a reason, I think, that he makes these claims in quick succession. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and you can't have the life unless you have the way and the truth. And you can't have the truth if you're not following the way. There is a, a process in this of submitting to his will and submitting, cementing our life in who he says we are. When we accept Jesus as our Savior and live under his authority as our Lord and King, a remarkable thing happens, though. We get to experience Jesus as the life that he says he is. We experience the fullness of God. We experience a life that is lived not for ourselves, but for Jesus. So at this moment, Thomas is probably thinking to himself, that was embarrassing. My mouth opened, words came out. Probably shouldn't have asked that. Can't believe I asked such an obvious question. I'm going to go hide in a corner. And Philip, who is, must have been Thomas's twin or something, he was like, Thomas, don't worry. I got you. You thought your question was bad. Hold on. Let me pipe up. I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to interject myself into this. And look at what Philip says in verse 8. Philip said, well, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, 
And at this point, I think Jesus was just a little sassy because he was like, guys, you don't understand. Time is short. I'm going to get arrested later tonight. I, how are you not getting this? He says, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. You see, some of us identify with Philip and with Thomas. We've been walking with Jesus a long time, and we've seen how Jesus is the way and why Jesus is the truth many times, and yet we still have those questions. Maybe we've lost sight of who we are in Jesus. Maybe some of you are sitting out there and you've never really committed to following Jesus as the way. Or you've never really accepted Jesus as the truth that can be the foundation for your lives. And I can understand that. It's a hard thing to completely submit your life over to Jesus. But I think for a lot of us, we've been following Jesus for a long time. And maybe we sit here on Sunday and we say all the right words. We might even have a Bible verse memorized, maybe even two. Maybe we have been able to share a Bible verse with someone that was meaningful. We've told them that we're a Christian. Maybe we've even invited people to church. But the life we're leading is not following the way. And it is not rooted in the truth. And the thing that we have to understand is that the life we lead is evidence of our belief. See, you can't hide from it. The life that you lead is the evidence for what you actually believe. It's not the words you say. It's not, it's not the, the time that you donate, the energy that you spend... The evidence of what it is you say you believe is found in how we live our lives. There's no halfway with God. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. That means that no matter what we try to do on our own power, we can't get to God without Jesus. So we need to submit our lives to his will. We need to have his truth as the foundation for our lives. My challenge for you this week, every, every week a uh, middle school,